Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Taxpayers Federation National Director Franco Terrazano tells us why his organization is taking the federal government to court over that $6,000 a night hotel room in London. Ontario physician Dr. Sean Watley looks at Justin Trudeau's latest health care offer and says it's a lot like Paul Martin back in 2004. And you'll meet Isabella Bertold, the new skipper of the first all-Canadian, all-women team in the America's Cup sailing race in Spain next year. So, let's get started. At least Bev Oda came clean about the $16 orange juice and her extravagant London trip. The cost of the orange juice was not maybe the appropriate expense for the government to pay, the former Stephen Harper administration cabinet minister said. I unreservedly apologize. Oda also later resigned. A decade later, and the federal government is again in hot water over lavish spending in London. This is the beginning of a new column today. In fact, across the nation's newspapers, written by our next guest, the head of the column, covering up wasteful spending is the rule in Ottawa. The author, Franco Terrazano, National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in the nation's capital. Franco, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, and thanks for having me on today. Well, it's good to have you back with us. Now, tell us a little bit. It was in the National Post a few days ago. Uh, the Taxpayers Federation is going to take the Government of Canada to court to find out the bottom line about the $6,000 a night hotel room in Ottawa, or I'm sorry, in London. Uh, have you got a court date yet? Where's that process this weekend? So let me just tell you where the process is. Uh, we've already filed the legal challenge with the Information Commissioner. So the, the complaint has already been submitted. The next step is we wait to hear back from the information commissioner's office. Now, look, uh, this is a $6,000 per night hotel room. It's obviously it was spent by somebody in the federal government at a very bad time for their constituents back home with the price of or the cost of living going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the governor general immediately said, hey, it wasn't me. I wasn't the person staying in that room. So if it wasn't the governor general... Who could it have been? You know, like, I don't think it takes uh, Sherlock Holmes to solve this mystery, but it is a matter of principle. They spent their money. They wasted our money on a $6,000 per night hotel room. They owe taxpayers transparency, and that's why we filed this legal challenge. I suppose, Franco, what's most astonishing about all of this, and and you've been at the tip of the spear, so you're seeing and hearing a lot more of it than we are out here, but is the degree to which the Prime Minister's people are falling all over themselves and bending over backwards to protect the the uh, the boss uh, from from any investigation. Here's a, a header of a column also in the Sun newspapers this morning. Alongside yours was written by Brian Lilly, who was a guest on the show yesterday. Here, Franco. The title of the column that Brian's has in the paper today: Trudeau's six thousand dollar per night hotel stay shows he has no respect for your money. Brian has skipped over the process that you're involved in and assumed, I think, fairly accurately that the uh, occupant of said hotel room was indeed the prime minister uh, and has written a column basically based on that. Now, you understand that to be the case, but what's what's maddening is the fact that no one will fess up and thus the court case. Yeah, and, and they're pulling all the stops, right, to really, uh, to really hide the true information from Canadian taxpayers. And, you know, if this government, to, to Mr. Lilly's point, if this government just spent really a fraction 
of the time keeping an eye on its spending in the first place as it does covering up this waste. I really do think we would all be better off here as Canadian taxpayers. But you know what? Let me dive into what else has been going on, what they've been doing to try to cover this up. Okay. Mr. Lilly wrote a column last week, and he obtained emails from the government, and it shows that you have political staffers, political staffers in a minister's office ordering bureaucrats uh, to essentially play coy with reporters to not directly answer their question. Right. Political staffers in a minister's office, okay? Now let's move forward to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's legal challenge. So we sent in a very, very simple access to information request. Who stayed in the $6,000 per night hotel room? Just give us the name. They sent us back a response. They wrote the name in the document they gave us back. Then they blacked it out. They gave us a redacted access to information response. Mm -hmm. Now, they cited two sections of the Access to Information Act as reasons for the redaction. Section 16 and Section 19. Okay, that's supposed to be about security concerns and protecting personal information. But that doesn't pass the sniff test. Can I tell you why? Okay, sure. Okay, let's look at the security claims. Well, hold on a second here. The Queen's funeral already happened five months ago. It happened five months ago. So unless the government is worried that the Terminator is going to travel back in time to London, England, I think we can safely disclose who stayed in the hotel room. Okay. Okay. Now let's look at the personal information uh, exemption that they claimed. That also doesn't pass the sniff test. Here's why. The law is very clear that these types of expenses are not under personal information exemptions. Because if you're on official government business, representing the Canadian taxpayer, using Canadian taxpayers' funds, then you have a legal responsibility to be accountable and transparent to the taxpayer. Well, accountability and transparency, in fact, uh, have been bandied about by this government since they were elected seven or eight years ago. They were very big on promising transparency and all and accountability and all the rest of it. And in fact, have turned out to be uh, much more secretive than the Harper government, whom they accused of being in, in fanatically secretive. Uh, by comparison, uh, Harper and his crowd were, were pretty loosey-goosey with, with, the, with the facts. Well, look, uh, Mr. Trudeau, right before he became the prime minister, I remember this just before the 2015 election. Your listeners probably do, too. But he promised to an extent to he said, look, Canadians deserve the most transparent and open government in the world. Right. And I completely agree with that statement. Um, However, (laughs) we certainly aren't seeing that as of late. This is a clear example of it. I mean, just tell us who stayed in the room. You spent your money. We deserve to know who it was. But there's some more recent examples. Let me list them off for you. Okay. Mr. Lilly, again, man, is he ever doing a good job as of late holding this government accountable? Uh, he filed an access to information request to get the hotel cost of a recent trip to New York. Now, the government disclosed how much it spent on hotels, but it wouldn't say uh, really any other details, like what hotels they stayed in, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Let me give you another example. Um, the governor general. Her and her entourage did a week-long trip to the Middle East. They somehow managed to spend nearly $100,000, folks, nearly six figures on airplane food alone in a week-long trip. Okay, so when that story broke, the, a parliamentary committee dragged those bureaucrats in front of the committee, and the bureaucrats downplayed the cost of this. Uh, the governor general herself said, essentially, 
we had normal airplane meals that Canadians are accustomed to. Mm. The bureaucrat said, the bureaucrat said, well, we can't release the receipts. We don't really have them uh, immediately. Well, you know how I know that's false? Because I was watching the committee and I had the receipts in my hand. Ah. Okay. <laughs> Here's what they enjoyed. They were having beef wellington pork stuffed tenderloin, um, beef carpaccio. Now, I don't know about you, but when I fly Air Canada or WestJet, that's not exactly the meals they're offering. Uh, no, uh, typically you, you get a couple of cookies and a glass of water. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the fact that this is not, this is not about looking back over your shoulder, um, uh, simply because uh, they're going back to London, Franco. The coronation is coming up in May. You think that we send a few people over for the Queen's funeral to represent the country. That was for a, a sad event. Now we've got a, a, a very much a, a celebration of the monarchy and all the rest of that. So it's pretty safe to assume that there'll be a much larger Canadian delegation going over for the coronation with pretty much a blank checkbook by the sounds of things. Well, and, and what's so frustrating is that I haven't really seen any type of cultural change here in Ottawa, if I can say that, or any real change in tone. And here's why. I mean, they're not even getting a real slap on the wrist. You know, like, where's the real accountability? Like, who is being held accountable within the bureaucracy for approving these decisions? And then who's being held accountable within the political realm, right? Like, which minister, which cabinet minister? Is the prime minister being held accountable for this? No. Which staffer is being held accountable for this? I don't see anyone really being held accountable for all of this stuff outside of a few bad days of press coverage, mm-hmm. right? And that's why we feel we had to launch this legal challenge, starting with the information commissioner, because we just feel that too often we're seeing the government and all governments really bend the rules to withhold information from taxpayers to duck accountability. And, and we think enough's enough. You know, uh, bad coverage highlighting this is one example of accountability, but we need true accountability in Canada, and that's why we thought we had to bring the information commissioner involved in this. Franco, remind our listeners of your excellent uh, taxpayers' website, please. Well, please head over to taxpayer.com, everyone. You'll see our newsroom, and there's some petitions out there you can sign as well. Taxpayer.com. Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Keep up the good work, Franco. Thanks for jumping in with us again today. Hey, thanks for having me on this morning. Here's the opening sentence to a piece that caught our eye the other day in the National Post. Quote, after staring down the provinces for months, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met with the premiers last week to unveil the most oversold, underwhelming health fund deal in Canadian history. This under the heading Trudeau Bucks Health Care Reform in favor of the failed policies of his liberal predecessor. The author was in the National Post, written by Dr. Sean Watley, a practicing physician and the author of a book called When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Dr. Sean Watley joins us from Mount Albert, Ontario. Dr. Watley, good morning. Welcome. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Well, it's good to have you with us, Sean. We appreciate your time on a Sunday morning. A very interesting uh, analogy that you've drawn. You've managed to connect the dots between Justin Trudeau and Paul Martin, and you go back to 2004 for the Martin deal. What similarities are there uh, in the recent officer, offer rather, from Mr. Trudeau uh, compared to what Mr. Martin had 25-some years ago? 
Well, we all remember Paul Martin's a promise of, quote, a fix for a generation, right? He dumped in $41.3 billion and said, all right, everybody, don't worry. Healthcare is going to be just fine. Look at all this money. And it turned out not to be true. Most of that money went to doctors and nurses' salaries. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, they had been cut for years, but it didn't really change care for patients. And that's the core issue. Well, of course, and, and as I recall, and it's been a while, but as I recall, uh, there was a, a, a lot of emphasis at that time was placed on wait times, if I'm not mistaken. And there wasn't a great deal of affected uh, change because of the $41, uh, $41 billion infusion of money. As you say, a lot of it went to compensation. Well, there were some changes, and so we have to give them the benefit of the doubt on that. Certainly, MRI, wait times for MRIs, CAT scans, cataract surgery, a joint replacement. However, what he introduced was this thing known as strings attached. Right. And so this is the issue of the federal government wanting to call the shots while only paying a tip on the total bill for the meal, right? They pay about 22 cents on the dollar currently, but they feel they have the right to dictate what the provinces do when it comes to health care. Federal provincial negotiations about health funding are a battle over money and control. I'm quoting you again, Dr. Watley. The provinces want more money. The feds want more control. The provinces want funding increases with little or no accountability. The federal government wants increased power while paying a fraction of the costs. There's the tension. There's the the dynamic that has so many of the premiers reluctantly accepting the deal while grumbling and grousing a lot in the process, right? Well, absolutely. And if you'll notice in the deal, there's a $25 billion keep your mouth shut side deal. And I, that's me paraphrasing, obviously. The, the Fed said clearly, listen, there's going to be $25 billion set aside for side deals. So in other words, if the provinces dare to say anything bad about this deal in the public, they're going to compromise that $25 billion. And so that's why we're not hearing that much grumbling. Mm-hmm. I would have expected a lot more. So then uh, is this a case of the province's understanding, I suppose, Dr. Watley, that Bottom line, either we accept this or or we're not going to get anything at all. Well, absolutely. And on the other hand, too, if you look at the actual targets they're talking about, they're 20 vague statements, modernizing healthcare. What the heck does that mean? Really, anything would qualify for that. And so I think the provinces are saying, listen, there's money on the table. Better take it and run and we'll live to fight another day. So let's go to the title of the book that we uh, mentioned that you've written, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Would you consider this recent health deal, and it's a matter of a few days old, Dr. Watley, to be precisely what you meant with the title of that book? Well, absolutely. This negotiation solves a problem for government, right? It makes a major problem and headache that's been brewing for two years go away. Finally, the, the, the federal government, the prime minister met with the premiers. And so now everybody should be happy. But does this improve care for patients? That's what we need to keep at the center of the discussion. And let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's expand the discussion, Sean, to talk about what sort of remedies you would have preferred the, uh, the, the mutual discussions to arrive at. In other words, what would you have preferred to see the feds come to the table with in the first place? Well, 
before I, I have three things that I'm going to tell you right now, having said that, my caveat is that we can't plan our way out of a problem that came about by planning, right? Central planning got us into this mess, right. and a new plan is not going to do a better job. Having said that, three things very quickly. Number one, we need to look at governance. Who do patients hold accountable when they don't get care? Is it the feds? Is it the provinces? Is it your local hospital? Number two, we need to emphasize life and limb care. Mental health is part of that. Get back to the basics. Really emphasize and expand those services. Number three, we need to reconsider whether whether everything we offer now is really considered an essential service. So it's a discussion about appropriateness. Governance, basics, and appropriateness. Get at those three things. Well, if you're talking about governance and who's really ultimately responsible for my care, if you scratch a typical Canadian, Dr. Watley, and you you give them the option of the feds, or is it your province, or is it the local hospital, what do you think a typical Canadian response is going to be? Well, it depends if they're at the bedside or not. So if they're at the bedside or they're lying in the bed, they're going to say it's their own doctors and nurses. Having said that, they'll very quickly jump to blame the provinces. But we have a problem of connecting management and politics intimately together. The politicians are stressed about what the managers do at the hospital level or the local level. The managers at the hospital level are continually worried about making sure their political overseers are happy. We have to separate management and politics, which leads back to the title of my book. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about management, because now we're learning in terms of the money we spend, the bang for the health care buck that Canadians get when we compare ourselves and our spending habits to fellow members of, say, the G7 or the G20. And you look at European models like Germany, for example, with roughly twice our population. And for everyone, this is zooming in specifically on those managers you were talking about, Sean, for every one manager in the German system, there are seven in the Canadian system. We're a little top-heavy with bureaucrats. And that is, uh, that's an, a built-in problem with the Canadian system. How do you fix that? <laughs> and we have two hours for this show, right? <laughs> so, but do you recognize so- that as, as a, a real part of the problem? Well, definitely. That's a part of the problem. And there's also the problem of of us not having enough basic resources. You mentioned Germany. They have eight hospital beds per 1,000 population. Canada has around two beds per one, maybe as high as 2.5, depending on how you count the beds. But we're way below the OECD OECD average of 4.7. So we're short on resources, heavy on bureaucracy. But In fairness, hospitals need those bureaucrats so that they can fill out applications to get more funding from the provinces. And so around and around it goes. Uh, When it comes to the next federal election, how critical do you think, because it's always top three uh, in terms of priorities for any voter at any federal election, how critical do you think healthcare and and management or a lack of management of same is going to be as an election issue? Healthcare is always a top three concern for Canadians, but it drops to the bottom out of a top 10 when you ask, will it change your vote? Mm. That changed in September with the Ipsos Reid poll. All of a sudden, we see affordability at 40% for Canadians and healthcare at 35% for changing their vote. And this is what has got 
government's attention at all levels. For the first time, perhaps in the last 10 or 15 years, Canadians are considering that health care may, in fact, impact their voting patterns. Interesting stuff. And of course, a shared pandemic experience, probably ultimately very healthy for Canadian democracy down the road. We may look back on this experience and go, well, thank goodness we went through that because at least we were able to use it to fix things. You're a glass-half-full kind of guy, Sterling. (laughs) (laughs) Great to have you on the program, Dr. Watley. Great to to, to speak to you, and I do appreciate your time on a Sunday morning, sir. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. History will be made in October 2024 when Canada sends a team to race in the first-ever Women's America's Cup in Barcelona, Spain. After 137 years as a men's-only sport, women will compete for their own America's Cup, and the Canadian team will be led by Vancouver's Isabella Berthold, Canada's top female racer who ranks second in the world. Isabella is a Vancouverite, and she's a guest on our program this morning. She's joining us right now. Good morning, Isabella. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you, and good morning to you, too. Well, it's nice to have you with us. So tell us a little bit about what it takes to become Canada's top racer and number two in the world. How long have you been at this, Isabella? Yeah, I uh, I actually started sailing when I was five, um, just uh, on the waters of English Bay off Jericho Beach. I got, got signed up for a summer sailing program much much by chance. It was an all-day uh, childcare option in the summer, which mm-hmm. I think was quite appealing to my mom. And uh, I, you know, I just fell in love with it. Uh, it was so liberating just to go out on the water as a five-year-old by yourself in what looked like really a floating bathtub is the best way to describe what these boats look like. And from there, it, it sort of just took its own path. And at 13, next thing I knew, I was qualified for the senior national team, which most sailors don't accomplish until they're sort of in their mid-20s mm. um, so it was it was already sort of a, a different start to my career I'd say that than most and so quickly it took me on the international circuit racing world cups and um, when you sort of say what does it take I think it, it takes just the never quitting and always sort of continuing and striving on and, and now I'm uh, racing much faster boats and that's what I think is most exciting also about the the Women's America's Cup is just how how quick and technologically advanced these boats are now that we will be racing. Oh, they're just unbelievable, as a matter of fact. Now, you've been all over the TV in the last couple of days, uh, <laughs> and we've seen pictures of these boats in full flight. And they, they don't even sit on the water anymore. They rise up and they, they ride on these, uh, uh, like, catamaran-type things. Tell us more about the design of these boats. They look hideously expensive, to say the very least, as well. And, and they're quite fragile as well, I will add. But yes, they um, so they're they're known as foiling sailboats. Okay. These, these basically boards that you see underneath the boat are are the foils, and it's much like an airplane when the airplane goes to take off. As speed builds over these foils, there's there's lift created, yes, which actually lifts the boat out of the water. And so when I started sailing these boats, it was almost like learning the sport all over again. Because now not only did I have to sail, but I also had to understand how to fly something at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the speeds, I've, I've personally hit close to 100 kilometers an hour on the water on a foiling sailboat. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if most of our racing is, is in the 80 to 90 kilometer an hour mark uh, come October of 2024. That's fantastic stuff. Now, what size crew will you be the skipper of, Isabella? Yeah, so on the, on the boat at one time, there's four people that will race. 
our our crew on the women's side will be six sailors. You do always need a reserve in case of injury or sickness. Sure. Um, so we'll we'll have a, a total team of six sailors um, going to Barcelona. So now, how do you go about selecting your team? Because it's just mm-hmm. this is just starting to come together now, uh, and you've got uh, until a year from October. So roughly what eighteen months max to to put this all together. Do you already have a sense of who might make the cut in terms of the team? And I'm sure. You're you're just getting swamped with applications as well, right? Yeah, plenty, plenty of applications, which is really exciting. And I think most exciting for me is also how young a lot of the applicants are. So they're obviously very inspired by this. Um, our team selection process actually started this past fall already. So yes, so certainly there's been there's been a lot of sailing, a lot of on water time that's been happening. Uh, and we also have access to a simulator, which gives us really helpful data to know sort of who who, po- who potentially could be good at sailing one of these boats because their boat like this has never been to Canada before. No one in Canada has ever sailed a boat like this. Uh, so it really is a brand new skill set. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to building the best team. And uh, I'm really a, a big fan of having the most collective knowledge as a unit. So uh, a personality fit really comes in a big part. Um, and just, I think, being hungry to learn and curious, want, wanting to learn and explore different ways to, to tackle problems is a big part of it. Indeed. So is there a boat? Uh, again, we saw pictures of these fantastic craft uh, in, in racing circumstances, too. But is there a Team Canada boat already for, for, the, for the race? Yeah, so the Team Canada boat is actually being built right now. Ah. Um, and so there, there's a few rules around order of boats and things like that. So our, our boat is in build, and we will be sailing it in sep- starting in September of this year. So we have a, a few more months to sort of learn learn the basics in the simulator before really just jumping out on the water and going full send send across uh, across the bay and where is the boat being built where do you where, where do you go to build a boat like this <laughs> yeah so uh what's very interesting about these boats is they're all identical and so they're all built by the same factory uh-huh. uh, it's called mcconaughey boats and so that ensures that it's a completely equal playing field um for all the competitors out on the water which means really that's going to be the best sailors that win at the end of the day that's interesting. Uh, it's yeah, the same principle as they use in, in, in False Creek, and it's a very small example, Isabella, but you're a local and you get it. Uh, in False Creek every year, we have the Dragon Boat Festival. You know about that. And, yeah. and and it's very important for the Dragon Boat racers that all of the boats that the teams race in are exactly the same. There are no advantages to from one team to another with a different design, a different makeup, a different composition. They They have to be the same for very good reasons, don't they? Yeah, exactly. You really you really want the best athlete to win at the end of the day, not not the team that had a slight technological edge. <laughs> so now let's talk about the fact that this is the uh, an all women's America's Cup. It's only taken 137 years, <laughs> Isabella. About blinking time, you might say. But what finally got it organized? Put put it over the top and and got the yachting community worldwide to go. Okay, for goodness sake, it is indeed about time. Yeah, you know, I think um, there. I mean, there's definitely there's been an all women's team that has raced in the America's Cup previously, and so what makes this special is that we have our own trophy that we are now racing for. Yes, and uh, so our own our own competition. And I think what I think as we've seen with sort of all women's sport over the past years is uh, the commitment levels have changed. Uh, we've been giving they've been given more resources as well. And more opportunity is really, I think, the, the key word here to showcase our skill sets. 
and to show that not only are we as competitive, not more competitive than a lot of male athletes now. And um, also, I so I think all of that sort of aligned for finally for for somebody to say, you know what, let's let's let them race on the, the very biggest show so show stage there is in the sport of sailing as well. And and not only race, but in the exact same boats that the men's teams are using for their training as well. So great stuff. Great really stuff. get to get to go head to head. You bet. Take us back to five year old Isabella out there and <laughs> off Jericho Beach in your little uh, solo. Uh, is that a sunfish? Those little tiny bathtubs with a sail on them that you talk about? It's, I have, it's I, called, I, it called an opti. It was literally like little floating bathtub is what they look like. Exactly. <laughs> I live down in White Rock and you see them and off Crescent Beach, the same thing in the summertime. They have day camp and the, the kids go out and they've got their instructor and each kid gets a little a little boat. And, and, and it just looks to be so much fun, Isabella. And you would recommend it, I gather, uh, given that you've it's taken you where you are now to number two in the world, you would recommend that as an activity for any kid who says, could I give that a try? Oh, oh absolutely. In fact, I would even say if Sign your kid up, and even if they say they don't want to go, let them go anyways, because I was very hesitant to go to sailing camp on day one, and it was not something I thought I would enjoy, but as soon as I was out on the ocean, I was completely hooked. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Isabella, thanks ever so much for getting up a little early on a Sunday morning to join us to talk about this. We have uh, great hopes for you in Barcelona a, a week, for, uh, a month from October, rather a year from October. You've got a, a, a massive task ahead of you. I'd like the opportunity to check in with you every now and then going forward. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.